Welcome to my Backstage Pass. We're here with Billy Hubbard, and my name is Lee Zimmerman. And today, we have the great honor and pleasure of interviewing what I can only say, what I can only describe as a true legend, Mr. Charlie McCoy. Charlie, <laughs> welcome to my Backstage Pass. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I like to consider myself uh, most blessed instead of a legend. <laughs> well, how about the word iconic? An icon, uh, well, does that work for you? Well, you know, hanging around a long time will get you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. And you, you've worked with so many. All right, here's the word again. You've worked with so many legends over the course of your career. And I wonder if sometimes you don't look back and think, my gosh, was that really me? I worked with Elvis. I worked with Dylan. Was that really me? I mean, does it ever really kind of seem almost beyond belief? It it does. It does. Sometimes I look back at it and I think, wow, you know, it's like a, it's like a fairy tale. It really is. Well, you, you must you must feel like. At this point, well, I don't know. I mean, do you feel like you've done it up that you've done it all, or is there still um, things remaining in your bucket list that you, you've yet to do and that you look forward to? Well, I, I look forward. You know, I'm still an active studio musician, and uh, I just love I, I love going to the studio. You know, and and uh, of course, in this weird year. Most of my sessions have been all by myself, but I really love I really love going to the studio with a full group of musicians, you know, and recording the the old way. Mm -hmm. I really love that. Uh, I've done I've, I've done seven or eight of those this year, but everything else I've done it has been you know just me. Uh, of course, with this technology, you know, it's possible to play on somebody's record from Europe, you know. Yeah. That's, yeah, Charlie. And, and I've done some several of those. Uh, but uh, I, I just love to do that. I like to make my own records, although uh, because of uh, the Internet, uh, making CDs has become an expensive hobby. I was reading in your book, and you mentioned something that, about your, the way you do session work. Really, you used to, you know, you did it as a, you do a one take or two takes with the whole, everybody in the same room. At back then, they didn't have the technology that they have today. Uh, everybody had to be there. Everybody had to perform. And that, that was the record. So those guys, those early Nashville 18 musicians, they were amazing. Wow. You know, they were expected to do three or four songs they'd never heard before mm. and wow. make the record in three hours. Wow. That's and those guys were genius. You know, the Floyd Kramer, uh, Grady Martin, Harold Bradley, those those guys, they're the ones who started this Nashville recording because in the early days, there was no studios here. And even the Opry people had to go out of town to make their records. And, and one day the Bradley brothers got together and said, you know, this is silly. This is silly for people to have to go somewhere else. The Opry's here. The musicians are here. They need to record here. Right. So they went and built a studio on Music Row, and that was how it began. Wow. 
So, I mean, that's crazy to think. Of course, if you're, if you're the A-team, I guess you can pull it off in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that's the way I learned to do it. Uh, and, uh-huh. it, you know, it took a – it was a long time before uh, they they got to where, you know, it was so you could have unlimited tracks and do your part as many times as you want to. Uh, you know, I, it's it's become kind of common these days. Uh, uh, some musicians are have gotten a little lazy because uh, they can sit there and play and play and play until they think it's it's perfect. You know. Oh gosh, uh, I can't imagine how upset your bandmates would get if you're the guy that made them redo it. <laughs> well, no, usually what they would do would be stay afterwards. Oh yeah, and then work on their part. It's like yeah, having to yeah. stay after school when you misbehave. <laughs> you have to stay late. Yeah, yeah. understood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, you know, I I was trained to to get my part during the three hours. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, if back in the in the old day, uh, if one guy messed up real bad, everybody had to do it again, ah. and mm. nobody wanted to be that guy. Oh yeah, but I mean, I remember when I was in school, I was always the last guy chosen to play on the the team, you know, would get down to me and one other nerd. And so I know how I feel. I'm relating to that, Charlie. Uh, (laughs) You were the equivalent of the high school jock as far as those uh, studio guys were concerned. (laughs) You came. uh, Well, uh, you know, I was I was 20 years old when they let me. Wow. When they let me join them, and I was, what, and what an education, jeez, you know, t- I couldn't have bought that education, you know. Man, come, and you were, and I remember you telling me once you were in uh, up in West Virginia at that little town. Um, oh yeah, Oak Oak Hill is that where it was? Oak where, Hill's where I was born. That's where Hank Williams passed away. Yeah, and that's wow. the reason I remember that because he left Knoxville here where we we're at, and uh, yeah, and made it that far just before they found him. Well. Uh, my buddy here, Lee, you know, he's, uh, was in Miami. And then I remember you, I was surprised to learn that. I guess I learned that in your book that you moved to Miami for a while. That's quite a, quite a change. Yeah, I lived in Miami from age nine to 19. Wow. What do you remember about Miami? You it remember, was a great uh, place then. It was really great. Uh, it had a, you know, of course it had, it's grown Yes. It's grown by miles, you know, since then. But it had a, it almost had a small town feel, and uh, and and you could go, we'd go out on our bikes and ride forever, you know, and uh, nobody, you know, there was not that much traffic, and nobody was worried about us, you know, and and it was a, it was a short trip to the closest beach, and you know, it was common for a bunch of teenagers to jump in the car and go to the beach it was no big deal you know wow and so what brought you to nashville i met uh mel tillis yeah well okay so in the in the mid 50s i was a rock and roller i played guitar electric guitar and i was i was a chuck berry fan i had learned to play a lot of his music and uh and sing it and uh, i joined a, a group there in Miami called the Old South Jamboree, and every Saturday night they would have a country music dance at the National Guard Armory. Hmm. Uh, some of the guys in that band were Johnny Paycheck, wow, 
he was a bass player. By then, he went by the name of Donnie Young. Uh, uh, Bill Phillips, who was a, a country artist, later became the opening act for the Kitty Wells Johnny Wright show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Justice was a fiddle player. He toured with George and Tammy. Mm-hmm. You know, so these guys were. They were uh, real country music players, and I was not. I was there to play rock and roll 10 minutes each hour. But one night, Mel Tillis came in, and I was singing my Chuck Berry, and when I came off the stage, he'd come over to me, and he said, Boy, you come to Nashville, I'll get you on records tomorrow. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That was like showing a steak to a wolf, you know? (laughs) And uh day after high school, I drove to Nashville, went to the office where his manager was, and his manager was a music publisher, Jim Denny, used to used to manage the Opry. He's now in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And I walked in and introduced myself and said, uh, Mel Tillis said I need to come up here and see him. And the woman said, oh, Mel's out of town. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I just oh drove 800 gosh. miles, you know. Uh. And... Uh, and uh, so she, uh, she's, I said, well, oh, my gosh. I said, she said, well, let me let you talk to Mr. Denny. So Jim Denny came out, he said, and he said this. I couldn't believe this. He said, Mel told me about you. Wow. He said, you want to get some auditions? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> so he took me over. I auditioned for Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley singing oh, Chuck Berry. Wow. And I had no idea who they even were. Holy cow. Well, that might have been better because otherwise <laughs> you might have been better. very intimidating. <laughs> it was better. Uh, and uh, they were so nice, you know. Well, son, we think you're pretty good, but, you know, we just don't do this kind of music here. Uh, <laughs> wow. Oh, gosh. Wow. Yeah. So Mel was, was from Florida. I don't know what town he was from. What he based, yeah, he's from uh, Pahokee. So. Oh, okay. So Pahokee, Florida, which is right up on the uh, southeast coast of Lake Okeechobee. Okay. In fact, right. when you go in there, this big sign, Hulk Tell to Mel Tillis. Oh, really? Yeah, man. Yeah. A- so uh, <laughs> anyway, that uh, of course I was, you know, I'm 18. I think I know everything, and uh, they said no, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> ah. and then Owen said. I'm having a session today. Would you like to come watch? And I said, uh, well, yeah. So I went back to his studio and watched a 13-year-old Brenda Lee record wow. one of her first hits. Wow. Wow. And They're when I cool. sit there and watch that session and watch those musicians, and when I heard the first playback, I said, right then, I don't want to be a singer. I want to do this. <laughs> Heck. And my, my, I went to back, I couldn't hardly sleep that night. I was so excited about what I'd seen and heard. And then I went back to Florida, started the university and I didn't even last a year. I got a call for a, for a guitar job in Nashville from some old friends of mine. Wow. And I broke my father's heart, dropped out of college, went to Nashville by the way, my father finally forgave me when I introduced him to Dolly. <laughs> you know what? I, I could see that. I could see that. I, I, hey, I saw know, you on that. I, Dolly, I was, yeah. I was watching a Netflix thing that they, uh, with Dolly on it, and uh, it was a documentary, and 
there you were. You're on the my big screen, and you look looked like you were uh, right here. But yeah, I thought that was fascinating. You were talking about Dolly and uh, some of your stories, but I remember that one thing I was, was going to ask you while you were young, we got for your young days. You, I remember seeing that you had a black Les Paul, and I thought, well, I wonder if he still got that thing. No, I sold it. Ah, <laughs> I don't have it anymore. <laughs> uh, uh. I was just curious. I thought. No, no, just keep stuff like that. Wish we had. You know, you said before that back in the day, Nashville didn't have the studios. It was nothing like it is today. So you were kind of there at that pivotal point where Nashville really came of age. And I, I think it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts about what Nashville represents today and how it's come along. And is it for the better? Is it for the worse? I mean, technically, I, you know, I'm sure it's great. But, you know, the rise of country music and the commerciality of it all. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Brad, Bradley Brothers built their studio in about 1957. And... They started to work immediately in there because all the Opry people were like, oh, hey, this is great. Well, then shortly after that, RCA Victor came and, and, a, and a block away, they built RCA Studio B. Mm. So now you had, you know, RCA probably had a roster of 20 artists. Uh, Decca, which was Owen Bradley, he had a roster of probably that. And now you also have. Columbia Records, Capitol Records, MGM Records, Mercury Records, they've got artists too. So they're going to record there as well. And uh, so for from the day, you know, in the in the late 50s on, it was it was very busy round the clock. Now it was pretty much the same musicians doing all the work. Right. The original Nashville A team. And if there was a, if you were in a session in the morning at the, at Owen Bradley and you went overtime, the session at RCA would start late. The the next one, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, anyway, they got it going and, uh, it was incredible. Uh, Owen Bradley had about oh, 15 or 20 artists. Most of them were in the charts all the time. Same with Chet. Most of them were in the charts all the time. And then the thing that happened was they started crossing over. Brenda Lee, you know, she crossed over. Uh, the Everleys started recording there. Right, yeah. Roy Orbison and, of course, Elvis. So that's four of the biggest pop acts in America are making their records in Nashville. With the same musicians that are doing all the country stuff. And so what these guys were doing was just incredible. And because uh, when I, when they let me join them, they'd already been doing this five years, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and here I did an interview uh, last summer with BBC and I was talking to a guy and I was trying to impress on this guy, how great the old Nashville A team was. And he said, well, in America, you have the wrecking crew, you have uh, Memphis, you have Muscle Shoals, you have Motown. And I said to the guy, let me tell you the difference. Wrecking crew 
all written arrangements. Memphis, Motown, Muscle Shoals, they had no clock, which means a session could last three hours. It could last six hours, you know. Wow. Because we had, in Nashville, we had the Musicians Union here, and we belonged to it, and that's where it was a three-hour session. And that was the difference. Now, I remember one thing. I don't remember everything I read sometimes, but a few things stuck out to me when I was reading some of your book there and it, about Dylan and when you recorded with him. Oh, Didn't yeah. it take a lot longer or something? Uh, oh, yeah. That first Dylan session was like a marathon. because, Well, okay. So, number one, uh, Dylan uh, came to Nashville kind of, he didn't, he wasn't that crazy about the idea. Uh, the producer talked him into it. So we were booked at two o'clock one day and his flight was late. He didn't show up till six. And then he's, his producer said, he told me to tell you guys, he hasn't finished writing the first song yet. So you guys, uh, so you talk guys hang loose. So we did. And we started recording at 4 a.m. the next morning. Wow. Wow. Okay. The song called Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. Oh, God. Which was 14, I mean, yeah, 14 minutes long. Wow. And, and, uh, and you're sitting there, you've been trying to stay awake all night and you're sitting there saying, <laughs> please don't let me make a mistake. Yeah. Man, that's a lot of coffee, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> but then, uh, after that, it went much better and we did the album Blonde on Blonde, which was his biggest album. Yeah. Masterpiece. Yeah. And after that album was released and it became a, a giant success. Man, the floodgates open oh, wow. for, uh, you know, people, artists, especially folk rock artists to come to Nashville and record. I mean, it was it was uh, it was crazy. It, re- it, it required more studios. It gave a whole lot of mus- musicians a whole lot of work, you know, Man. and this this town was really hopping. Wow. Well, I know you you did Paul Simon. You worked with Joan Baez. You worked with Buffy St. Marie. Um, so that in itself reflects the fact that uh, yeah. you were on to something there as far as that uh, folk music was concerned. But I remember when you and I spoke, you were saying that Dylan was kind of nonchalant. I mean, you would say, hey, Bob, is this the way you want it? And if I'm yeah, remembering he correctly, would. he would he he would say whatever whatever you think. <laughs> yeah, I was asking questions and he wasn't answering. He would say, "I don't know, man. What do you think?" Yeah, what do you think, man? What do you think, Charlie? Uh, yeah, so maybe uh, maybe in, by rights I should have been the producer on that album. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I'm just one thing. Another question for why we get off this stuff is: whenever do you ever have a uh, say like a artists come in and they're just in love with their bandmates and insist they do the session work. How, how was even back then, uh, you know, to play on the album or, or did you just get mostly, most of them just have session players? Yeah. Like yeah oh yeah. 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 It was, it always, uh, it always, uh, I thought it was always funny that Mel Tillis's records all said Mel Tillis and the state Siders. Right, that's what I that's what I was wondering because you see that you read the album sometimes and you think, well, 
It seems like the, that's the real band. <laughs> but the Statesiders didn't play on his records. Ah. It was all studio guys. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, was there any kind of um, culture shock there for you or for the artists? Like when Bob Dylan comes in, he's such an enigmatic uh, individual, you know, such mystique and, you know, that sort of thing. And you guys, you know, you were doing what you were doing. You were pros. So was there any kind of cultural divide that you had to transcend to to start the communication going? Not really. Uh, you know, it, it, he, he, would, he would pick up his guitar and play, play the song for us. We'd learn it, you know. And uh, then uh, I was session leader, so I'm the one who kept asking him. And uh, so uh, we finally just did what we thought based on the song, you know. And, uh, and I finally told the producer, I said, I'm asking him questions. He's not answering. <laughs> I'm going to quit asking, uh, yeah. and uh, we're just going to do what we think. And he said, hey, great. That's what I would do if I were you. <laughs> I said, okay. okay. So when okay, you, we'll, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No. That, that, so uh, uh, he said, go yeah. on and do that. So when you hear these brilliant songs, uh, when you hear a Bob Dylan song for the first time, he's playing it to you. Is it kind of dazzling? I mean, his songs are just, they were so different uh, and unique but, and wow. But but just remember this, that this, this town is so full of amazing songwriters. Yeah, know? yeah. It, it's, just, it's just more of what you're used to. They're, they're a little different style, you know. Yeah. But, but it's the same, it's. It's the same thing, and and I was taught early on uh, the philosophy of the Nashville A team is this: number one, you studio musician, check your ego at the door. <laughs> yeah, we don't care how much you know; all we care is what can you do. Yeah. And number two, the artist and the song is a picture. We are the frame. Hmm. Our job is to frame the picture, not to distract from it. Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, and I, when I read books, I try to. I always like getting these simple little nuggets of truth. They're not simple, but I mean. But and I remember another one that you said was that um, about the words or something. They said that uh, if you can't, somebody gave you some advice once that as a session guy, you were playing. I think yeah. you were playing maybe too much or something. They were. Somebody critiqued you and said, "Hey, make sure you don't over cover the words." Or yeah, something. right. That that's it. That that's it. Uh, frame the picture. Don't take away from it. And uh, for me too, you know, uh, with harmonica, especially female artists, you're right in their vocal range. Oh, and uh, it it can really get distracting, you know, if you play too much. Wow. So, so obviously what you're saying is check your ego at the door, but these artists that came in, did they check their egos at the door? Well, not all of them. No. Some of them were, but for the most part, almost all of the artists that came here were really nice. And, Hmm. uh, And of course, all the country artists, they knew all the, everybody knew everybody, you know, and it was like, 
it was like a family gathering some on a most on a lot of the sessions and and owen was owen bradley was a guy that he had the same group he used all the time and a couple of the other record labels did too chet was a little more adventuresome he he's a guy that gave a lot of young new musicians a chance you know and uh but uh but it was it was most of the time every it was it was a great atmosphere everybody was very friendly and uh everyone appreciated what everyone else was doing one thing you before you off dylan uh i remember charlie daniels once said i mean it's been years since i heard him say this but he said that when dylan first came to town that uh he's he kind of made it sound like folks were thinking man this guy can't write or he's maybe his lyrics were weren't put together right and he said then next thing you know everybody's trying to copy him (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 he must have got some criticism when he first rolled into town or something was it well i'm sorry go ahead you know uh columbia studio had bought the had bought owen bradley's place there and that studio his original studio was called the quonset hut and if you've ever been over there and seen the building the the back you can see the roof line on the back where it was the roof was built like an old coincident like the army used to build and uh so he sold that studio to columbia records and it was it was booked around the clock because so many hits were cut there and so he uh so they said columbia records said man we got this much business let's build another studio we'll get even more well, they built then what became Studio A. I never figured out why it was A and the Quonset was B, but that's what they did. And nobody would use it. Huh. You know, people are su- superstitious, man. All the <laughs> hits were cut down there. Heck yeah. So when they called for with Bob Dylan, Columbia Records said, uh, I mean, yeah, the New York people said, listen, we want uh, we want. Bob Dylan to have the concert had all week and, and Columbia Nashville Columbia said no it's already booked and we're not canceling out our our regular customers for anybody you know <laughs> but we have studio A so they finally said well okay and yeah. it was great because they could block book it then all week cuz nobody else was there you know oh yeah wow. and uh, it that became his place, Studio A, because he also did John Wesley Harding, yeah. uh, Nashville Skyline, and uh, Self Portrait there. Uh, which were groundbreaking records at the time because the whole swing from rock to country to this hybrid, I mean, it was, it was kind of revolutionary at the time because those two cultures were really divided. You know, the long hair rock and rollers versus the country folks who were perceived in a different way. You were really transcending both styles and and culturally as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. We uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the older folks in Nashville said, "Yeah, you guys are recording all them hippie artists." Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it ever intimidating though when like an Elvis or a Dylan or or a Ringo Starr walked in? Was it ever wow? You know, ooh, got to get myself you know together here. Okay. There's a what it just depends how you look at it. Okay, Ringo Starr was a huge star, but so's Johnny Cash. Right. You know, uh, in my in our minds, even though 
okay, you're reaching a much smaller audience. Your sales are probably much, much less, but in your market, you are just as big and successful as they are. You know, yeah. Loretta Lynn was as big a star to the country people as Dylan was to the folk rock people, mm-hmm. you know, and that's kind of the way we had to look at it. These people are whatever genre they're in. They're huge. You know, Hey, speaking of Johnny cash, uh, now what's the story about, uh, when you played a harmonica, wait a minute, was it that one you did like upside down or something? You, you did something. Special. Yeah. He asked me, uh, his, when they called me for the, my first session with cash, they asked me, uh, can you play harmonica like Bob Dylan? Ah, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's harder than it sounds to yeah. make it work. Sounds hard. And so I ended up, he did the song, uh, uh, Oh, <laughs> I'm having a scene. I, uh, so. I wonder what it was is, uh, ain't it me, babe, or something like that. That's it right. It ain't me, babe. Oh, yeah. And I ended up, uh, I was trying to play that stuff and i ended up turning my harmonica upside down uh but uh hey they it, they they loved it it worked out and uh then the, the my big break with johnny cash was in 1965 they called me to and they did orange blossom special oh yeah a vocal version and they asked me to play the first solo and i was trying to figure out I got a, this song is such a fiddle song. I mean, try to think of something that sounds kind of fiddle-ish. And I ended up doing the thing with two harmonicas. And and at the end of the session, Johnny Cash walked over and said, can you show me how to do that? Wait a minute. You mean you, mean you played them? How do you do two at once? <laughs> no, you don't do it two at once. You alternate oh, you, them. Oh, you alternate. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, and, man. Uh, so I, I showed Cash what I did, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you these two harmonicas. So wow. I gave him the two harmonicas. And after uh, after the session was over, I'm thinking, hey, you know what? i got to seriously learn this song because <laughs> this is very cool. Wow. And I did. I recorded it. Uh, we had a single on it in 1972, I think, that got up the charts but then I kept playing it and I started playing it better and faster. So I recorded it again <laughs> cool. faster. Hey, I was, I was telling his, uh, Johnny Cash's, uh, grandson. Uh, I don't know if you remember Thomas Gabriel. He, uh, he was Kathy's son. And we actually, we, Lee and I interviewed him recently and, uh, I was talking to him a couple of days ago. I told him that we was going to be talking and, but, uh, he, he was, uh, he was at the time. He said, "Well, he probably won't remember me." He was a little blonde-headed kid, but he's if if you ever if you like Johnny's, uh, you want to hear Johnny's sound in his grandson. He's uh, the only I think uh, grandson or kids he's had that has that ability. His hair raising. His name's Thomas Gabriel, but man, he's a uh, he's just uh, exactly can't hear. Close your eyes, you'll think you're listening to Johnny. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So so. When Ringo came over, you know, I ha- I'm a little starstruck here. I have to admit it. I am a little starstruck. When Ringo Starr comes over, I-, I know that you guys took this all in stride, but here was a member of the Beatles. He's from England, you know. I mean, he's from a, a totally different world. 
was was he intimidated? I, I you know, with his love of country music, he walks into the real deal here. Did you sense that? Well, maybe you know he's uh, trying to get adjusted to this. You know, at the same time, he's no. He seemed to be very much at home. He loved country music, right? Which uh, you know, I mean, he he talked to us, and and I, there was a reporter there the first day, and uh, said uh, said, "Who's your favorite country artist?" And he said, "Kitty Wells." <laughs> Kitty, Kitty yeah. Wells. <laughs> uh, and he was great. He was he had so much fun, you know, and. Uh, and when you see that going on, it's, it's, you know, everybody relaxes and everybody was, you know, we, we had a great time. The album was called Boku of Blues. Right. It was recorded. Uh, well, the studio's no longer there. It's now a parking lot. It's ah. the studio Scotty Moore built, uh, over on 18th Avenue. It was called studio 19. Well, first it was called music city recorders. And then somebody changed the name to studio 19. But that's where uh, D- uh, Ringo did that album. Did, did he kind of take a leading role? Did he say, "This is what I want. This is what he I had like a few to ideas." Did, yeah. Or, yeah, or he but did, did he accede to you guys? Did he say, "You know, you guys know how to do this. Uh, do it." <laughs> well, it was it was kind of a mutual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Pete Drake was a session leader, right? And uh, he was, you know, uh, other than uh, Ringo. Uh, suggesting some things pete kind of took control you know so that's right. uh gotcha gotcha yeah you know i i think we'd be remiss if we didn't quickly bring up the fact that you were with hee-haw for nearly two decades as their musical director oh, yeah um and again, here we have a landmark show. I guess it was sort of a spinoff of sorts from Laughing, the same sort of idea, but tailored to a country audience, which again was kind of emerging at the time as far as, you know, the mainstream, television mainstream was concerned. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, I didn't join until season seven. Okay. Uh, and uh, I joined, well, first. I was called to come in and play behind two songs behind Ray Charles. Mm. Just that. And then after that, at the end of that show, the boss man, his name was Sam Lovello. He was a producer. He called me in and said, uh, we'd like for you to consider being a regular member of the band. And I said, man, I don't know. Uh, I am so busy doing studio work. He said, Hey, the band only comes in about eight days a month. Wow. Great gig. Yeah. And, and it it only, it only, uh, they only taped two months a year. Oh, okay. They taped in June. They did 13 shows and they would air from like September to Christmas. Then they'd tape in October and do 13 more. And they would air like from new year's to, to like April and then all 26 would rerun. So that that's the way they did it. And, and they never, you never win it. The, the model was rolling and Martin's laughing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the production style was the same. You never went in and did a show. You went in and did segments and somebody put them together later. They edited everything. The whole show was done in the editing room. They would do comedy bits like, okay, uh, barbershop. They would do 
They'd set up the, the set, the lights, microphones, do 13 of them back to back. Wow. And it was, they'd have strict comedy days. They'd do nothing but comedy all day long. They'd do the barbershop. <laughs> they'd do the thing with the two got you know, gloom, gloom, agony, despair. Uh, the girls singing, uh, we don't go around spreading rumors, you know. Well, Cinderella. They would do uh, Cinderella or something. Yeah, Archie right. Campbell, Archie Campbell had that. And and they had they did they could do so much work in a day. It was unbelievable because when you got a cast that big, <laughs> time is really money. Wow. And uh, and then we have music days. We do four artists a day. Wow. Two in the morning, two in the afternoon. Wow. Now are each artist would do two songs, and one little short comedy bit. And that was about it. So, and, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a well-oiled machine. I'll tell you that. So anyway, after I played with Ray Charles, he I said, well, he said, well, why don't you try one half season? Okay, I'll try it. Well, as it worked out, there was no conflicts in my studio work, and and I loved it. Oh my gosh, talking about talking about. Uh, legends man oh man every day you come to work there's buck owens there's roy clark mm. there's grandpa jones wow. uh you know there's mini pearl i mean my gosh and they everybody there was they were having a ball and they were so nice you know so so at the end of that half season he said uh well what do you think and i said man i really love this he said well we want you to be band leader <laughs> wow Wow. <laughs> so I, I, I agreed to try that a half season. Wow. So I did. And then at the end of that one, he said, our music director, George Ritchie, is leaving the show to marry Tammy Wynette. <laughs> wow. Uh, we, we'd like for you to consider being music director. Wow. So that's – and then I stayed until the end, which uh, – the season, the show ran twenty four seasons. Yeah, wow. Uh, Speaking and, of, and uh, that was uh, so. I I stayed it stayed it out to the end. I just loved it. It was uh, it was so much fun. Speaking of band leader, a friend of mine. I was in a studio last week and got here locally. Uh, Lou Mullen. He was used to play with Lori Morgan, but he uh, took a girl. What is called a Texaco? Where they had the People from different regions, you know, would play to compete. And anyway, to yeah. the Nationals, I, I thought it was Texaco Challenge. I could be wrong, but he was telling me, and I was mentioned you, your name to him. And I said, he said, man, he said, I went into play. A, he, they, he actually, the girl he was playing with here was from Airtown, actually won $100,000 that year. And Lil said Woo. that. Yeah. And he said that he got there and he said, looked over and you were the band leader. <laughs> so he said that you, he, and he said that was a, a tight, one of the best bands that he had ever course played with but uh, anyway we were talking about so man you're all over the place <laughs> <laughs> you are and, and you've had so many solo albums of of your own and, and you know I'm, I'm curious you know when when it's your album you're the guy in the spotlight the responsibility is really on you um you're going to get the attention when you're playing for someone else you know, you're you're in the background there, and you do your best, obviously. But what's the difference? I mean, do you which do you prefer one over the other? Do you like doing your own thing? Do you like working with others? Um, is there a, a difference there? 
I love the combination. Uh, you know, I mean, after uh, after uh, I did that, you know, after I saw the Brenda Lee session and I came up here, I never I never had any thoughts about being an artist anymore. Hmm. And uh, and Fred Foster uh, asked me on a session to come out and join him for lunch. He was the owner of Monument Records. And he said, I, I want you to make some records. And I said, really? And do what? He said, I don't know. Just go in and be creative. <laughs> and I made records for eight years that we couldn't give away. Oh. Oh. And at the end of eight, we struck. We had the instrumental version of Today I Started Loving You yep, Again. Yep, yep. That, uh, and that album won me the Grammy. Right. It, it went and, top 20 uh, in Billboard. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, I said, now, wait a minute, (laughs) this artist thing is not too shabby. This is kind of fun. And so, so, uh, I continued to make albums. I think I had 10 chart country singles and, uh, I don't know that that may be a record. I'm, I'm not sure. And, uh, I did 14 albums for Monument, and then they went out of business. And and I thought, yeah, I'm going to keep going, you know, because we're we're doing okay with this. And <laughs> so uh, I now have 43 of them. Wow! wow. And uh, one EP and and an instructional DVD. <laughs> wow! And and you reached number one in Billboard's country charts with Good Time Charlie. And yep. it should be mentioned that you have a pair of CMA awards and seven ACM awards. And yeah, you're in I'm, the Country Music Hall of Fame. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. No, I've been, uh, I've been, I'm telling you, like I said, my career is like a fairy tale. Uh, musicians Hall, International Musicians Hall of Fame, West Virginia Music Hall of Fame yeah. as well. And, and you're yeah. a doctor. You're a doctor, too. Yeah. And when you have a yeah, chance, right. I got this little something on my elbow. I need you to look at, doctor, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, I was I was given an honorary doctorate from the West Virginia University. Yeah. And I was thinking, man, I said, uh, would my mama be proud? Because here's a guy who dropped out of college. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you, you, you know, of course, uh, we booked you. I booked you out there at the station, and you've been here a couple times. Man, the people uh, live show. You put on a great live show. People love it, man. You mix in some good corny jokes and uh, had Jason. Oh, well, you know, I, I borrowed a lot of he stuff. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, and um, you, yeah, you brought Jason Cohen. Uh, who he? Uh, I don't know if uh, Lee Lee was there, but uh, Jason Cohen, Floyd Kramer's grandson, right? Who does yeah, that slide that, key thing? Uh, that boy is so so good. So, yeah, he, we're, he is amazing. You know. He and I've been playing together off and on about ten years. I swear wow. I've never heard him make a mistake. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> oh, well, I saw him doing some live stream recently, and I, I was, and I don't, you know, usually you walk by those, and, you, and I don't didn't have time, but I had to stop and listen. Man, it was a, it was pretty cool. What he had going on, but we're, yeah, I we're get, we're having you guys back. Uh, hopefully, everything, if, if all this COVID's behind us next year, the spring, so. Hopefully yeah, well, we're, we're we're hoping so for sure. Uh, uh, I got to do that uh, streaming thing he does. Oh, I didn't see I, you on that one. When I watched, I don't think you were there. Was that? But. Yeah, that was so much fun. 
Yeah, everybody looked like he was outside having a fun time, man. That was that was good. And and Floyd and his grandpa, if I remember right, you and he were um, did your first first session together? Is that right? Or was it- yeah, we, we Floyd and I had we had four things where our career really crossed that I that are monumental to me. Number one, he was on that Brendan Lee session I watched. Oh, the first session I saw. Number two, he played on my first record. Cool. Uh, number three, uh, I did, uh, I did, uh, 18 years of concerts up in my hometown to raise money for the town park. He mm. came and played my concert one year. Mm. And of course, then the other thing was he was the first musician inducted in the hall of fame in 2003. Wow. And then in 2009, I joined him there. Wow. wow. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Nice. Well, no, is it, one thing I've always wondered. Is, are there any words to last date? Is that there was a vocal version. I want to think that maybe Skeeter Davis recorded. Okay. I've never I heard believe. any words. I mean, I heard, yeah. heard the music. So I've never heard. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big hit or anything, you know, but uh, yeah, there are, there were words to it. Yeah. Well, we'll let you go here in a minute. I know we, we only we won't keep you probably this long, but uh uh, one more thing I just thought of is this is what something that amazes me is the way you, I see these, some of these harmonica guys in the seventies and eighties, they would have these big bells of harmonicas look really cool. And when you came to the station, I was, well, you had yours in your pocket. And I thought, how's he going to know you, you just reach in there and pull out. Do you have some kind a of vest? A, I have a, a vest that's made. Oh, and you know where to put them. Exactly. Huh? for <laughs> Harmonicas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was fascinated. I kept watching. I thought, how's he doing that? <laughs> well, the key to it is put them in the right place to begin with. <laughs> yeah, be organized. Because oh, yeah. I, yeah. I never look at them, you know, when I pull them out of there. Oh, I yeah. just look to make sure if it's right side up. But as far as making sure which one it is, I don't because uh, I have a system. and <laughs> uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully I do it right. But you know what? As somebody asked me, so... What do you like better, studio work or playing live? I said, you know what? I like the combination because, number one, in, your, in the studio, that recording machine, the only thing it'll tell you is exactly what it played, what you played. It won't tell you if it liked it or not. Oh, yeah. Whereas yeah. playing live, you get the immediate feedback of people. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I love a combination, well, you, but there's not much combination this year. No. Uh, well, I know. I do one, one thing I like to do is uh, at the station because I'm there for so many shows that I'll go back and look in the door in the side doors at the audience where I can see their faces. And sometimes, you know, you can you can you know read very easily. But in your, I remember your show. Everybody just had a constant grin. It seemed like on their face. They were so maybe those jokes you were telling. <laughs> <laughs> but they were well, loving your music and everything. I, I remember a lot of he all stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> Very handy. You know, I got to ask you one question. I know we're going over, but real quick, are you a sentimental kind of guy? You can look back on this amazing career, all that you've done, so many things. Are you sentimental? Do you ever put yourself back in time, so to speak? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I re- There's certain, you know, I mean, I've done so many sessions, but there are certain ones that stick out to me that I remember. I remember where I was standing in the studio, wow. like he stopped loving her today. Uh, cool. 
Old Dogs, Children, Watermill, and Wine. That's my favorite record I ever played on. Really? Wow. Tom T. Hall. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Uh, yeah. I, I remember special things about sessions. I remember when when the producer was Billy Sherrill, when he said it, he sat down and played the song through once at the piano so George Jones could sing it. This is He Stopped Loving Her Today. Mm-hmm. Because the piano player on the session was Pig Robbins, who's blind. Oh, but, yeah. but you only have to play it once for Pig Robbins. I promise you that. Right. But anyway, uh, when he was playing that song, every musician in the room were looking around at each other like, oh, my gosh, this is special. I mean, you know, you, every once in a while you're on one of those and you get that. Uh, everybody gets that, that feeling, you know, that this is going to be something really special. I, I had that feeling on Pretty Woman. Cool. When, wow. when we were doing Pretty Woman. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and some of those some of those things are. Uh, yeah. And uh, got to record with Gordon Lightfoot. Wow. Oh, What's wow. song? What song? In- it's called the Canadian Railroad Trilogy. OK. Yes. I, I'm familiar yeah. with that. Yeah. And uh, he was man. That guy's amazing. And uh, saw him uh, in Florida. Two winters ago, he had a concert down there, and we went backstage and talked to him a while. It was fun to see him again. Wow, it's wonderful, man. Well, you're—I think you're the most interesting guy in the world to that other guy, whoever he is. I mean, musically, you certainly are. But, uh, <laughs> well, please, anything else you got there? We might be able. To no, I, I, I just got to say, I mean, the hairs in the back of my head just stand up listening to you i mean i don't care what you say sir you are a legend and i think all of us no matter what genre we prefer just owe you a debt of thanks for contributing to some of the great music that has been the soundtrack of our lives for the past uh well, I'm not going to say because we don't want to age anybody, but for a very long time. <laughs> okay. Let's hey, let's don't age anybody. I'll be 80 next year. Wow, good for you. You sound wonderful and you look wonderful. Well, yeah. I feel great. I, 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 I and I'm a, you know, I'm a big walker and I'm I'm really serious about it. I mean, I I'm, I'm obsessive about it. Wow. And uh I believe that's the key to the key to my good health. I'm not kidding you. I've been doing it 25 years. Well, hey, you didn't have hardly any senior moments, so I think me and Lee have more than you do. Yeah, we had more senior <laughs> moments. You were tallying them up right now. We keep track. We keep track. I did want to mention your book, though, that I highly recommend because I uh, I was telling Lee before we got before we got here, we were saying that I I think I was telling you one day we were uh, when you were here in town. I was saying, man, you start telling some good stories. I said you need to write a book or. Anyway, and he said, oh, well, he's got a book. <laughs> nice, but it's fifty cents in a box top, and it seriously yeah. is a. Man, there's Is a that lot. how much it costs, Billy? Only fifty uh, cents in a box stop? That's uh, very well, inexpensive. I think I think it's been. Uh, I think that's talking about his first harmonica. Right? Oh, 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 I'm <laughs> hey, sorry. Hey, it was 1949. 1949. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, hey, that's a good. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, and that's a. Your website, did you, did you say you're charliemccoy.com? Is that is that correct? Yeah, charliemccoy.com. That's easy. All remember. 43 CDs, uh, EP, instructional. A DVD and the book are all there, and they're all in print. I like to hear that. Yeah, yeah, Good. yeah they're yeah. all in print because uh, we are actually uh, my wife and I are actually the 
the mail order, it goes to a website, you know, so people can buy with their credit card, but we're the ones who fill the orders. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, family operation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a family operation. And uh, we even do it in Florida. I mean, we have enough stock or we take stock with us because the mail order goes on all year and we want to make sure that, you know, when people want something, they can get it. Yeah. 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 And the holidays are coming. Hey, folks. Yeah. Christmas gifts. Plus, uh, folks can catch you overseas. About as, it looks like about as much as they can catch you here, right? You do a lot of overseas shows. Yeah, well, I was supposed was. to go. Let's see. I was supposed to have a uh, Mediterranean cruise this year uh, uh, and a tour in Sweden. And needless to say, uh, those went by the wayside. I was also supposed to be on the uh, country family reunion uh, country cruise in December out of uh galveston that got canceled Mm. and uh yeah so but you know almost every artist i know are in the same boat literally in the same boat yeah or they would have been in the same boat they were canceled (laughs) yeah and and when you rebook them by the way billy and i are available as road crew because that mediterranean thing sounds great we'll carry your gear those all those harmonics whatever it takes yeah (laughs) Yeah, all right what i love to do is get on stage setting up and the drummer is hauling all this stuff in and i just i like to look back and held up one harmonic and say the choices we make when we're young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. Hilarious. Well, we hope, we cer- certainly hope that uh, we could see you in the spring here in East Tennessee at the station. And uh, and hopefully, heck, we may have to do a part two. We've got so much info, but yeah, we'll do that when we hear. <laughs> anyway, we'll, uh, we're going to sign this thing off here. And uh, Lee, you want to give us a professional outro here? Well, I'm, I'm a little intimidated. We were just talking to the professional. But anyway, um, yeah. thanks very much for tuning into my backstage pass. And uh, this has been Billy Hubbard. My name is Lee Zimmerman. Thank you, Charlie McCoy. Yes, thank you, Charlie. And uh, hey, we'll see you very soon. Okay, yeah. thank you all. And uh, man, I really hope we can hope we, it happens over there uh, in uh, April. Yeah. Yeah, we'll looking be in touch and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, surely we will. So, anyway, Charlie, thanks a lot. And we're going to, if I could sing Happy Trails, I'd sing it. But uh, we're just going to say, along. we're just going to say Happy Trails to everybody. <laughs> yes, sir. And hey, y'all stay safe over there. You yeah, too, you, you too. Thank you, Charlie. Okay. Bye. Bye. Later.